Welcome to the Hill City Church Podcast. We are a church family located in Springfield, Missouri. You can learn more about us and support our ministries at hillcitysgf.org. All right. Good morning, Hill City. I like that. All right. Open up to Hebrews. If you don't have your Bible, no big deal. We're going to have most of it on the screen. So we're going to jump right in. If you remember week one, when Brad opened up this series in chapter one, he said that he had three goals for us throughout these three months going through Hebrews. Jesus is supreme. If he's supreme, he's worthy of our worship. And if he's worthy of our worship, we will naturally tell people. When we leave here today, when I say, go be with people as sent people, remember Hebrews, three months long, the purpose is if Jesus is supreme, he's worthy, and we go tell people. Jump in. Hebrews chapter 1, God is talking about exalting the Son. Exalting the Son. When you go to Hebrews chapter 2, it's God sending Jesus Christ, sending the Son. In chapter 1, it's talking about the deity of Christ. We believe that Jesus Christ was 100% God. Here at Hill City, we also believe that he was 100% human. In chapter 2, it talks about the humanity of Christ. Listen, that is something that's a paradox. We'll never understand it. That how in the world does 100 and 100 make 100? 50, 50, no, he wasn't 50% God. He was 100% God, 100% man. That's one of the core doctrines, because if he wasn't God, then he cannot secure your salvation. Chapter 1 talked about the supremacy of Christ, and it's a theme throughout the rest of Hebrews that he is supreme, he's above all things, and it flows right down all the way through chapter 13. Chapter 2 talks about the suffering of Christ and his humanity, how that he went through things so that he can empathize, he can sympathize with us, so that he can know how to counsel us through our sins. And he does that, does he not? And it's good. Hebrews chapter 3, it's kind of odd because 3 and 4 make one whole narrative, and it's actually referring to another narrative. If you noticed, it's Psalm 95 is being quoted, but Psalm 95 is about a story in the Old Testament. Numbers chapters 13 and 14. So when the nation of Israel, they're slaves in Egypt, and God comes to deliver them, he says something curious. He goes, go tell Pharaoh that I want him to let you go. And it wasn't just for no purpose. He says, I want you to go three days into the wilderness and worship me and sacrifice. But that wasn't even the ultimate purpose. He had promised them some 400 years earlier a land that would be theirs, flowing with milk and honey, and he wanted them to dwell there. And so he comes, and through all the plagues and the mighty, mighty power of God, he delivers the nation of Israel out of Egypt, and they're going to the promised land. And they get to a place called Kadesh Barnea, and they're starting to get scared. So they ask for God's permission, essentially, can we send spies into the land? And if you remember, they sent 12 spies into the land, and they come back, and they're like, it's just the way God said it was. But 10 of the 12 said, Except he left out something. There's giants in the land. And compared to them, we're like grasshoppers. And two, Joshua and Caleb says, listen, what they're saying is true. But if God promised this, we can go into the land and we can conquer it. And if you know the story, the collective unit steered and they went back. They didn't want to go into living the way that God wanted them to into the promised land, and they turned back from God. 
And so do you see why this story is so important? Why he chooses, the author chooses this story is because these Hebrew Christians that we're reading about in Hebrews, they were here and they were suffering such persecution that they were collectively going, I think maybe we want to go back to a different way of life. This way of living, not so much. We're tired of it. We want to go back into Judaism, which was a way of life for them because it was comfortable It's what they knew, and they were tired of the persecution. He chooses that story because it's a narrative of similarity. In Hebrews 4 and 5, we see Jesus, the high priest, introduced. And it's important, and I know it's weird for us because we we didn't grow up having to have a sacrifice once a year by a high priest to cover our sins. There are so many things that we read about in Leviticus, and it just seems odd to us, but this is a major theme in the book of Hebrews. In fact, so much, he's going to make a little parentheses, which we'll talk about today, and he continues to talk about the high priest in chapter 7, 8, 9, and 10. Like, it's a major theme. It's because in their head, when they understood, when it became intimate to them about what Jesus has done, then they would no longer want to turn back, but they would continue and persevere and follow him. If you wonder why Brad stopped short last week in verse 10 in chapter 5, it's because chapter 5 verse 11 all the way through chapter 6 is one story. It's one passage. Even though your Bible divides it, that was only in the 1400s that they started putting paragraph divisions in your Bible if you didn't know that. The reason they did Because it helps us understand better because we don't read as much as we should. We'll get there in a minute. It's a warning passage. In fact, in chapter 2 is the first one. The the book of Hebrews contains five. Two, chapters 3 and 4 contain the second. And this is the third warning passage. The author of Hebrews comes to them and says, If you don't stop, this will happen. But what's crazy is you start reading this. This is the passage that everybody wants to dig into because it's like, well, this is one of the ones where you can lose your salvation, and it's not. And if you want more details, come tonight, and we can work our way through that in a setting that's a little bit more proper. But in that, people are like, well, that's where we want to stay. We want to know what that says. Listen, I'll just tell you. I've studied it. I've taught it. The warning passages in Hebrews I really don't believe the author even knew what would happen if they collectively turned back. Let me tell you this. If you would have went and interviewed Moses before that Kadesh Barnea turned around and then had to spend 40 years dying off in the wilderness and said, Moses, what do you think God's going to do to them if they turn back? He wouldn't have known. He would have just said, it's not going to be good. There will be judgment. And I think in, the, in the, the, the warning passage in Hebrews, it's the same. He didn't know exactly what would happen, but said, it's not going to be good. You know why we're not going to dwell there today? Because that's not the theme of chapter 6. There's a word that comes up three times later in the chapter. And as he changes from negative to positive, he's going to have that for them. But in Hebrews chapter 4, the first slide, it says this. This is a key verse in Hebrews because, listen, this has so many major themes in Hebrews that continue throughout the book. This would be a key passage for you. It says, since then we have a great high priest who passed through the heavens. Isn't that a great, Brad mentioning that last week, how the, the high priest in the Old Testament would have to pass through the Holy of Holies, pass through the curtain 
and come into the Holy of Holies, Jesus passed through the heavens, the great high priest, the son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. You know what you do when you're baptized? And I'm excited that baptisms are coming up in about a month, right? You know what you do? You publicly confess. And then once you step out of the water, you know what you do? You hold on to your confession. That's what the Christian life is. It's holding on. It says, for we do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us win with confidence draw near. Now listen, you've got to remember that phrase, confidence draw near. Drawing near is what the writer of Hebrews wants them to do. It'll be over and over and over throughout the book, drawing near to God. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace in time of need. It's so important to know that. Well, Hebrews 6, 1 through 8 is kind of negative. Well, he comes back in verses 9 through 12, and he introduces what we're going to talk about today, but he changes it into being very positive. Let me just tell you this. This is one of the key things that I want my boys to be able to do in life. It's one of the key things in Proverbs. And this is a young gathering. Let me just tell you. Please listen. Be able to take instruction. But more importantly, be able to take rebuke. And it's something that your generation, it's like, well, I'm offended for them. And you just, I heard something this week that was so stupid. Some girl was offended because somebody else said something to somebody else and they weren't offended. She was offended that they weren't offended. It's just like, have we lost our minds? Like, it's a generation who can't take a rebuke. And it's so important because you know what Jesus has to do sometimes in our lives, even as believers? He has to come and say, you you can't do that. Stop it. Change. Turn around. Repent. I hope you realize that that's something in the word of God that's all the way throughout Proverbs that you're like, yeah, none of us like criticism. None of us like to be rebuked, but we have to learn how to take it. And the first part of this passage, chapter 6, verses 1 through 8, was a rebuke. But he turns it very quickly and says, I'm going to build you up. And listen, throughout your Bible, whenever, almost every time, you read through the minor prophets, you read through much of the New Testament, we're going to look at a passage in Galatians today. Whenever there's a rebuke, almost always it's followed up with a message of hope. We're going to talk about hope today. In chapter 6, verses 9 through 12, he starts out, this, this, and he says, though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things. What was this way? Though we speak in this way, well, he opens up in chapter 5 at the end, in the beginning of chapter 6, and he just rebukes them and says, listen, you're dull of hearing. Like, I wanted to come before you and continue this subject, Jesus Christ is the high priest, but I couldn't because you're like babies, And listen, when you go read it, it is kind of sarcastic. It's a dig. It's against them. 
says, I just wanted to teach you and continue these, these doctrines that I want to teach you, but I can't because you're dull of hearing. And it makes sense because you come off of Hebrews chapters 3 and 4, and you're like, oh, that's why he kept saying, today if you listen to his voice. Today if you listen to his voice. Today if you listen to his voice. They were people that had stopped hearing God talk to them. And we'll see it later that that's one of the sources of encouragement. But in verse 9, it says, Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things. Remember, the, Hebrews, the book of Hebrews is a book about better things. Jesus is better. There's a better covenant. He said, we feel sure of better things. Things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. He actually says in chapter 10 again, we know that you're a people that have been following Jesus. Don't stop. He says, and we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of, let's try it again, the full earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end so that you may not be sluggish or dull of hearing. Those terms are related, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. And you know so many of those names would have been popping up, those that inherited the promises, those who persevered. In fact, he's going to spend chapter 11 going through a bunch of different names that were so, so um, well-respected among these Hebrew Christians. And we look at verses 17 and 18, and it continues in Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 6, there we go. For when God made a promise to Abraham, we'll just start here. So when God obtained a sh desire to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, the unchangeable character of his purposes, he guaranteed it with an oath. He refers to him making a promise to Abraham and having no one greater to swear by, so swears by himself because he can't lie. So that two unchangeable things, and it's impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast the hope set before us. And later on in chapter 10, we're going to see it says, let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering for he who was promised is faithful. He's faithful. You can always have hope in Jesus because he has always been faithful. The story of your whole Old Testament is really revolves around one theme. God is faithful to his covenant and his promises that he gives to people. And it's so absolutely encouraging. Hebrews chapter 6, 19 and 20 will continue. It says, we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope. How many of you this week, maybe the past month, maybe this past year, you just needed an anchor for your soul because you felt like whew, your soul, your mind, your will, and emotion, who you are was just fluctuating you felt like it was drifting off like a balloon. You just, you just needed an anchor for your soul. This is a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. 
And you're going to see in the next couple weeks, chapter 7, verse 19 says this. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. Being able to draw near to him because he's our hope. And so we've got a picture of, of a bridge. And it's because if you know, we mentioned so much up here that we try to figure out what the author intended for the original audience. This group of Hebrew Christians that were thinking about turning back. And that's where we find the meaning. And we just look and we got to, okay, we know what it means. Now we got to cross that bridge and get to the other side so we can apply it for us. We realize it wasn't, wasn't written to us, but it was written for us. And we're going to cross the bridge and get some application, right? That's what God would have for us. But I don't know about you, but when I read about their historical situation and what they were going through that was making them turn their back and not follow Christ, I think, yeah, I can't relate a lot. I mean, maybe I've been made fun of, you know, maybe somebody said something because I'm a Christian, but really, it's been pretty easy for us as far as physical persecution in the United States, right? It's not like that all over the world. Don't ever forget as much as you can, have a global worldview and think of the world the way God does because a minority of the world gets to do this with no repercussions like the Hebrew Christians. But as we walk across that bridge, I just thought and thought this week, I go, what's, what's the one thing? Like for me, and I think I'm fairly relatable, what's the one thing for me that I get from this? And it's this, the message all throughout Hebrews has been a message of urgency. Like there was an urgency because they, would, they were thinking about turning around. And he said, don't turn around, persevere, continue, don't quit. It was urgent. And I think as we cross the bridge over into our world, that same urgency continues in the text. And the urgency exposes our complacency. does for me at least. Anyone else become complacent? And it's not like you're like, I'm being persecuted. I'm going to turn my back on Jesus and I'm going this way. For us, it's not so blatant. It just happens. We become comfortable. So many other things, so many other distractions. And we're like, you know what? Jesus needs to have the allegiance. But really, if I really to take account of my life, he's in maybe second, third, fourth, fifth place. Because all these other things matter more. And we would never just go to him in prayer and go, ah, there's all these things that matter more. But listen, I'm going to tell you for some of you today, that is the prayer you need to go to him with. There's all these things in life that matter more than you. I'm sorry. I repent. I need to draw close to you. It's a time of need, and he's just waiting for us to draw near to him. But over here in complacency, I think so many things about my life. We turn from him, not as a result of persecution, but as a result of our complacency. This is going to be as easy as one, two, three. It's that easy. One, two, three. We have one hope, and who is that hope? Jesus. We have two enemies of hope, but we have three sources where we gather hope, where hope flourishes for us. Jesus is our hope. Now, 
I know there's some of you out there that are of a similar age who are raising kids, maybe a little bit younger, your kids are smaller, maybe a little bit older, your kids are gone, and I know you can relate to this. So easily, our hope can be, okay, we've got to raise these kids not to kill each other or someone else, right? And then it turns into, we just need to get through this parenting thing without hating each other. Anybody else? We need to make these little things into functional human beings so people don't think that we're horrible parents. Right? Some of you are getting a a view into what your parents have thought for the last 5, 10, 15 years. And then after that, we just need to get them set up so they can be functional human beings and, and, and just make a way out of the house. Just going to tell you, our oldest is at college and our youngest is a couple years away. So we kind of get a glimpse every now and then, like what empty nest is. And we're like, this is nice. We haven't felt like this for 20 years. Like, this is awesome. And then the 401k. I've got this number that I've got to get out because you know what? I mean, now they're out of the house and we can do all these things. But man, I I just, I kind of got the retirement bug. Like we need to get, and so quickly this can become my hope. Are any of those things bad things? No. But they can strangle Jesus as the hope of my life and be a counterfeit hope. Now, for some of you, a lot of you in here, it's this. I just want to have a good time at school. Right? Oh, you guys want to have a bad time. Oh, okay, my bad. Hold on, let me think about another. No, I just want to have a good time at school. Two years, three years, four years left. 2.2 slide on through. Please, Jesus. Like, just get me through it. I want to have good community. I want to have good friends. I might want to experiment and try some things. Like, you have all these things. And then I want to get, I don't know, a job that's good enough for me to take away from my parents and say, I'm my own person. Like, I want to do these things. And so quickly does that not become a hope. Here's another one. I want to just meet my soulmate. Because there's one What happens if that person dies? Oh, never thought about that before. Well, I guess there's two. There's two ones, right? It's ridiculous what we think sometimes. But how quickly that becomes your hope. Everything you think about surrounds it. And Jesus is like, I am your hope. Everything else flows from that. Got two enemies of our hope. One is external, one's internal. The first enemy of our hope is the course of this world. Hebrews chapter 2 talks about that Satan devises this world in a way that's not conducive to living for Jesus Christ. I don't know if you know that, but any of you are familiar with a golf course, you start out on hole number one, you go to two, three, four, and you end up on 18. Why? Because they designed it that way. Satan designs this world for you to go through hole by whole, step by step, and none of it, none of it he designs to worship Jesus. Listen, you are swimming up 
stream in a river that is flowing very, very fast away from Christ. That's why the Hebrews, they were so worried about the Hebrew Christians, it would be so easy to turn and go back to what they're comfortable with. In our complacency, if we're not careful, it turns us and we don't even know we've turned. Talks about the enemies, the course of this world. The next one, passions of the flesh. One is from the outside in affecting us. One is from the inside out. And so when I'm thinking about this, I'm like, oh man, there's so many places to go in scripture. There's so many lists. There's so many ways to describe this. And I just thought of one. I thought, you know what? I want to be positive. I don't want to be negative. I want to be positive up here. I want you to like me, even though I want to tell you what God says. And I think, you know what? I'm going to go to the fruit of the spirit. So we're not going to go negative. And then I open it up in Galatians and I'm like, oh, I forgot. Fruit of the spirits, 20 through, 22, 23 and on. But if you read up before that, there's a list. Sometimes you just want to skip them. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit. If you didn't know this, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, when the Holy Spirit moved into you as a temple, he began to go to war with the desires or passions of your flesh for control over your soul, your mind, will, and emotions. If you've ever wondered, why do I have this inner turmoil? Why do I struggle so much as a Christian? Let me just tell you, because there's things at war for your attention and your passion and your devotion. And that's a good place to be. If you're like, Stephen, I don't feel tension. I don't feel war very often. Let me just tell you, you're the first person I've met that's just living in absolute victory in Christ, or you're so deep in complacency, you need help. There should be a turmoil, a war. It's a suffering. And at the same time, there's a peace, and there's a love, and there's a joy. It's a paradox. Ringing a bell for anybody, it's the Christian life. And you read that, and you read that there's a war going on. It says in verse 18, but if you're led by the Spirit... Okay, I always hear this, walk by the Spirit, live by the Spirit. What does it mean? I know it wouldn't be anyone in here, wink, wink. But you've all seen someone that's been intoxicated, right? I'm glad that there's a couple of you who have been exposed to what alcohol does to a person. They don't walk straight. They don't think straight. Why? Because something is controlling them. They'll say things they don't mean. They'll pout in the corner. Or they'll say something aggressive. They'll trip off a stage. Okay, we, we get that. We wrap our heads around that. Don't be drunk with wine, but be controlled by the Spirit. Listen, whenever you let the Spirit of God that lives inside of you start controlling you, and you go to it and say, I want you to be my power source, you'll start saying things. You're like, where did that come from? The Spirit of God. You'll start walking a certain way. Where This is just the power of God that's supernatural. He says, but if you're led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Here we go. A couple thousand years ago, still relevant. I wonder if they struggled with any things we don't struggle with. 
the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, that defines our culture. Idolatry. No, Stephen, we're good there. We don't have little idols. Colossians says, what is idolatry? Covetousness. We covet. We want things that God says, no, you shouldn't have that. Sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions. Oh, I don't think. Have you looked on social media? It's all over. It's in the church. Paul says, let it, no, not once be named among you. Envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these, I warn you as I warned you before. He says, I warn you. So not only the course of the world from the outside in, our passions of our flesh from the inside out, war against our hope. But there's good news. Oh, there's good news. One hope is Jesus, two enemies, and we have three sources that Jesus provides for us. Now listen, I'm going to stop right here, and I'm just going to tell you. Many books have been written. Many sermons have been preached. Many philosophers have pontificated, trying to come up with something else besides these three. And I know some of you are too young to remember this craziness, but listen... How easy is it to lose weight? I mean, if you're going to do it, it essentially boils down to eat well, exercise. It always has. It always will. You'll just have to trust me on this. There have been machines like you get up and you step on it. You take the belt and you wrap it around your fat body and it jiggles your fat. And they say you're going to lose weight. You're like, when did that happen? Oh, years ago. It'll probably happen again. Oh, if you just buy this roller that you roll on the ground with, all this. Eat well, exercise. I don't know if you've ever realized this, but you walk upstairs and something that we have for our children at Hill City is to memorize the word of God. And I don't know why, I don't know how, but for some reason in church, we get to a certain age, middle school, high school, I don't know. It's just not like kosher, it's not cool, like it's not something you do to memorize God's word anymore. And that's been a part of the American church for 50, 60, 70 years now. And if we need to renounce it, why? Because memorizing God's word is the only way that he's given us to defeat sin in our lives. It's the only way. You're like, what do you mean by memorize? I mean like memorize it, like meditate on it. You're like, okay, well, okay, I'll go home and just, just get in a room alone and just read. I'm going to be as practical as I can for you. Maybe for some of you it means a three-by-five note card. Everywhere. On the dash of your car. Stoplights only. Maybe it means your phone screen. Maybe it means on the front of your trapper keeper. There's a few old people who thought that was funny. What is that? That's an antiquated old folder that you took to school. They're probably so retro, they're in. <laughs> it's some way where you can constantly be taking in the word of God so that you can memorize and meditate on it. You're like, okay, meditation. I'm not real Eastern. I'm kind of Western. What does that mean? The first person that you just knew you're in love with the first person that you knew you're in love with what did you think about all the time 
That's meditating. That's what meditating is. You meditated on that person. It's not emptying your mind of nothing. It's not nothingness. It's taking what God's given you and meditating and thinking and obsessing about it. That will be a source of hope. It's not getting up and doing a morning devo, though it can be. It's, it goes deeper than that. Number two, Romans 15. The spirit of the living God is a source of hope. I pray that you are going to him in prayer. It's so simple. The Bible, God talking to us. In prayer, the Spirit of God, us talking to him. How crazy is this? People that say they know Jesus. Yeah, I've got a relationship with him. But he never is allowed to talk to them because they don't open up their Bible. And very seldom do they ever talk to him unless they need something. Never just to say, thank you, I worship you, you're amazing. What kind of relationship is that? It's not one. And the third source is God's church. Now, I know this sounds kind of harsh. If somebody were to come in here and say, well, you profess Christ today or you're going to die, I'm dying. It would make me feel better if you guys died with me. You're like, well, that's kind of morbid. Isn't there just something about God's community being one people, like-minded, with one hope? God never meant the Christian life to be lived in isolation. He meant for us to live it in community. There's something about God's church, God's place, his community, where we draw a source of hope because we're together in the same situation fighting complacency. Trying to remember that Jesus is our hope. And listen, some of you, you get discouraged because you haven't been a believer that long and you're just like, man, I just, I'm around people. They've been, they've been a Christian longer. It seems like they know more about their Bible. It seems like they pray more. Listen, please, please listen to me. God's expectation for you is very simple. Walk towards him, and listen, even when it's two steps forward and one step back, it's okay. You keep going towards him, and it's a consistent pattern of growth. It's a consistent process of growth in your life. It's not about having achieved. That's why you never hear it from this from this stage. You never hear it at Hill City. Oh, there's a place where you can achieve. No, it's a journey. It's about going to Jesus. Jesus. 